you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. What is the Bible? What is it? Here at the very beginning of this admittedly foolish sermon series, in which we will attempt to convey the whole of the Bible in five weeks, we begin with the what. What is the Bible? It's a book. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's a book. It's words on a page, collected, bound, read, revered, proclaimed, fought over, fought for, studied, thrown out, picked up, held at bay, held tight, memorized, forgotten, discovered, all over again. But the Bible didn't just fall into our laps from the heavens like manna from the sky. The Bible arose out of the experiences of the people of God as a community of faith. And very importantly, the community that came into being came into being before there were any scriptures at all. So when the Israelites are making their way out of Egypt, they're not putting in their robes copies of Exodus to read later. The earliest Christians, those following Jesus, they didn't have notepads in their pockets to write down everything as it happened. And yet, when the Hebrew and the Greek and the Latin scriptures finally came together, the word church was in every single one of them. The church and the Bible are inextricably linked together. We cannot have the Bible without the church, and we cannot have the church without the Bible. We read the Bible together. It's meant to be read in community. And so when we lift up the Bible in worship, when someone like Larry comes forward and stands and says, the word of God for the people of God, we do, the, we do so with the recognition that this book is actually a collection of other books. Lots and lots of books. And they contain voices from different places and different times. Some of those places include the Dead Sea and Rome and Egypt and Antioch, tiny towns that don't even get a name, huge metropolises that still exist today. They come from prisons and podiums and even a place called Patmos. And the, the whole of Scripture is written over a time period of 1,500 years. And that's not even mentioning the great number of people responsible per, for putting these words down, the people responsible for passing them along, for collecting, canonizing, those who translated it from one language to another language to another language. They reflect a dizzying ray, array of possibilities, all of which influence how we read this book we call the Bible. There's a parable that kind of helps us to think about this wonderful thing we call the word. Imagine you're at home one day and there's a knock at the door and when you go to open it, there's a delivery. And the delivery is a giant trunk. You've never seen it before. It's old and weathered and battered. And as you drag it into your house, you can hear all sorts of objects inside the trunk rolling around. And when you open it up, you discover all kinds of things. 
There's inventories and diaries and there's poems and creative writing assignments and blueprints and photographs and letters, genealogical records, drawings, and on top of all of it is a note. It's a note from your great-great-grandfather and all it says is, this is who I am. The Bible is like that treasure trove of a trunk. It's a gift given to us by God filled with all kinds of things that are designed that we might know a little bit more about the one in whom we live and move and have our being. But what is it? I've always loved how Karl Barth refers to it. He says, the Bible is the strange new world of God. I think I've said strange new world of God in every single sermon I've ever preached. I love that expression so, so very much because it is a new world. When we read the Bible, we are transported through time for time. We stand with Adam and Eve in the garden. We stare up at the stars with Abraham. We see the separation of the sea with Moses. We, we hear the parables of Jesus. We bask in the light of the transfiguration. We cower at the sights of Revelation. Everything in the book is about God. It is a story about God. And, and here, at the very, very beginning of this collection of books, this collection of words, we receive a variety of answers to the question of who and what God is. Just within the first few chapters, we learn that God is a cosmically distant creator with no gender. And that God is an embodied something who can walk and talk in the Garden of Eden. And a multiplicity that desires to make us in their, notice the plural, in their image. Let us make them in our image. A few pages later, we discover that whoever and whatever God is, God regrets, delights, mourns, protects, punishes, soothes, demands, loves. God is compared to a mother bird, a patient father. God is likened to a warrior and water and wisdom. The depictions of God in the Bible are nearly endless, and that's just a sample from the beginning. And yet the Bible, though it's full to the brim with all these ideas and images and stories and suggestions, it's also incomplete. It's incomplete insofar as it actually leaves us with more questions than it provides us with answers. Questions like one I remember asking in my own confirmation class many years ago. So if Adam and Eve had Cain and Abel and Seth, where did everybody else come from? I can remember my pastor looking at me saying, that's not a question we're going to discuss in your confirmation class. Cain and Abel and Seth, where's everybody else? Or if God didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then why did God put that tree in the garden to begin with? Lots and lots and lots of questions, which leads to a rather simple and yet profoundly intense statement. The Bible, being the wondrous and the wild thing that it is, is far less concerned with how and far more concerned with why, and above all else, 
It's concerned with who. The Bible cares more about the why and the who than anything else. And so we begin at the beginning. On the only day when there was no yesterday, God started it all. Light and matter and life, God brings all things into being simply because. And yet there's an order to it all, how things relate and connect and bind to one another from the very atoms and the molecules that we're made of to the galaxies and the farthest reaches of the universe. Building blocks are built together and then God fashions us. Our ancestral parents, Adam, literally meaning of earth, Eve meaning full of life, they are given the keys to the kingdom of the Garden of Eden, which means paradise, and yet paradise is not perfect. The two are told, you have the run of the place, except you can't eat the fruit from that tree over there. Don't think about it. Don't even worry about it. It's like putting a piece of chocolate in front of a child and saying, don't eat the chocolate. And so they do. Everything falls apart. Their desire for more, their desire to have everything, their desire to be like God gets them kicked out and they have to fend for themselves in this strange new world. And then children come. Cain and Abel, and then later Seth. Cain, of course, grows jealous of his brother, eventually murders him. The sons are married off. Adam and Eve become grandparents and great-grandparents, but things don't get better. Yes, people begin to populate the earth, but wickedness does as well. God sees the wickedness of God's own creation, and Scripture says that God grieves what God made. God decides to begin again, clean slate. Except for Noah. Noah is a seemingly righteous person, finds favor with God. So the Lord provides plans for a nautical vessel, that will deliver Noah and his family from God's recreating flood, 40 days, 40 nights, rainbow in the sky, a sign that God will never again recreate in the way that God did. And yet things don't get better. Noah's first post-sailing adventure is to cultivate a vineyard from which he gets good and drunk and curses one of his sons. And his sons begin to have descendants. They repopulate the place until from them nations begin to spread across the earth after the flood. But things don't get better. There's only one language on the earth at the time. And even with the great varieties of people from different places, they all come to one place. They build a great city and a great tower so that they, like their ancestors Adam and Eve, can be just like God. The tower goes up. God comes down, dividing their tongues and scattering them across the earth. And they name the place Babel because there the Lord confused all the peoples of the earth. From the moment I said, we begin at the beginning till that last sentence, was all of Genesis 1 through 11, and it was only 400 words. God creates and God recreates. In turn, we receive this gift of creation only to squander it again and again. The rest of the Bible, as we will come to see in the next four weeks, relays the relationship between God and God's creatures as we run off into the far country of our own mistakes only to find that God, the prodigal God, is waiting to receive us with open arms. So what do we make of this beginning? 
this beginning of a very large book. I think often when we read the words of Genesis 1 through 11, we immediately wonder about their literalism. Are they literally true? Did God make the universe in six 24-hour days? Was there an actual human being named Adam who lived all by himself until one day God put him down for a nap, stole a rib from him, and fashioned Eve from it? Was there really a giant boat filled with two of every animal as the floodwaters wrecked the planet? Are these stories true? I think there's actually a better question. Not are these stories true, but are these stories real? Are they real? Because Genesis 1 through 11, all these stories, they're not merely meant to teach us ancient history. Again, the Bible isn't as concerned with how, as much with how as it is why and who. These chapters, these stories at the very beginning, they convey us to us. They tell us about our struggles with temptation, our propensity toward violence, God's unwavering commitment to be for us. It's important to know how to read the book. Because I think sometimes we read it in a way that we get so hung up we don't realize that part of the beginning is meant to be read like poetry. Like poetry, like a song. And the business of poetry, as Marianne Moore said, is to give us imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Imaginary gardens with real toads in them. Which means that even if the flowers in the gospel garden are the imaginings or the imagings of various biblical writers, then the true frog of God is hiding in the shrubbery waiting to jump out and astonish us from time to time. Whether it's the, the descriptions of created light from word or the instructions on how to build a seaworthy boat or the ramblings of a very long genealogy, the Holy Spirit is pleased to let these words stand before us as the one and the only Bible we've got. Basically, the Spirit, like any good poet, knows that metaphors and analogies and stories and images are not just the best tools we have for getting at the truth, they're the only tools we have for getting at the truth. Which means that the beginning of the Bible is actually as real as it gets. It tells us a truth that we want to deny and pretend isn't true all the time. I mean, who among us thinks that the world is just fine as it is? Are any of us content, happy that this is what it is? I mean, maybe there are some people. Voltaire says that optimism is mania for maintaining that all is well when all is actually hell. I don't think that's what the Bible gives us. I don't think it gives us foolish optimism. I think the Bible actually gives us something that's real. It gives us the truth. When I preached those words at the first service, when I said things are not as they ought to be, do you know what happened? An ambulance drove by outside. Just like they are right now. <laughs> Does that not give you pause? Things are not as they ought to be. If things were as they should be, there would be no sirens on Sunday morning because no one would be in need of doctors. No one would have to go to the hospital because everything would be perfect, but it's not. 
And the Bible tells us that. I cannot believe that just happened again. <laughs> the world is not as it ought to be. Selfishness and greed. They destroy us from the inside out and the outside in. Our, our, our ignorance and our foolishness divide us and upend us. Have you ever noticed what Adam and Eve do as soon as they discover the truth? The moment that they take a bite from the tree that's forbidden, the very first thing they do is they run and hide. They go run and they hide in the bushes. Our primal ancestors, our representatives are hiding in the bushes. They are afraid because of who they are and what they've done. And whether we want to admit it or not, we all know that feeling. Every one of us here knows what it's like to have done something or to have left something undone that makes us want to go hide. <laughs> and yet this is where the Bible really gets good. Because the very moment that Adam and Eve go and hide in the bushes because of their mistakes, it's the first action of God toward humanity. And the first thing God does is God comes back for the people who don't want to see God anymore. From the very inception of the story, we discover that God will just not give up on us. I mean, hardly a minute passes between the catastrophic fall of humanity and the action of God to return to those who have messed up. I mean, that's the reason it is so important that God still speaks to us through this strange new world. Preposterous as it may sound, at least according to some of the terms of the world, here are the words that the church lives by. Here are the words of the Bible. God loves you. In spite of all the reasons that God shouldn't, God loves you. God loves Adam and Eve and Susan and Steve. God even loves you. Which is why even all these centuries later, people like us keep coming back to this one book we call the Bible because there's something in this book that transcends everything. There is a mysterious life that is given to us. It renews us from generation to generation. How? Because God wills it to be so. Because the Spirit still speaks to us through the scriptures and the sermons and the songs. Because the Son keeps inviting us to the table of the sacrament that we might hear the truth. The beginning of the Bible points us to the whole of it. This is a book about God. Everything we do is about God. And it all starts with the scriptures. We pick one scripture for a Sunday. We pray over that one scripture. What is God saying to us today? I hand the scripture to Deborah. She takes it. She prays over it. She finds music that fits with it. I take it. I pray over it. I read. I write. It's all from this one thing. What is God saying to us through this word? And perhaps today, what God says is that the Bible is a gift. It's a small gift, maybe as small as a seed perhaps even as small as a mustard seed. But when it gets planted inside of you, it starts to change everything. Because it grows and it ripens and it bears fruit such that one day we can stand and sing with all of the saints before us, 
all of the saints among us and all of the saints who will be here long after we're gone. My God, how great thou art. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.